You should have a prayer in front of you. Let's pray this, and that might launch us into, um, into a little discussion. I do want to, here's what I think we want to do. I'd like to clean up. This is um, probably, so far as I'm concerned, probably the last week we'll do the Desert Mothers. I know I told you we'd go on to something else, but there's a little wrap-up we can do from the book, and really then we're through the book. So um, let's, let's pray. We'll pray this great prayer by St. Macrina. And uh, by the way, do you hear John Paul II is going to be beatified? May 1st? Very in- they just announced it this morning. That's very interesting. So um, that'll be a big deal in Rome. There'll be a couple. It means he's on, yeah, he's, well, it means, means he's on the way to being sort of an official saint in the church. I mean, you heard the story about on his deathbed, a, uh, uh, like a six-year-old boy with a brain tumor came in well, the six-year-old boy said, I'd like to see the Holy Father. And they said, oh, you can't see him. He's on his deathbed at Gamelli Hospital. And uh, the Pope's secretary said, let the boy come in. It's fine. He comes in. And the Pope, you know, had, at that point had a tracheotomy. He had all, could barely speak. But he blessed the boy. The boy went out, and the brain tumor was gone. Isn't that great? So they did a scan, and they, you know, and then that's where the term devil's advocate comes from. Because people, like some of you, sit here and say, well, that can't really happen. And the devil's advocate was a doctor and lawyers and things like that who were trained who would go in, examine the case, and they would try to refute it. And if it couldn't be refuted, then what happened? It was proven to be true. So, um, so that was part of it, you know, that, that miracle. And then uh, there's been one other one since then. I think a French nun had Parkinson's and has found to be cured by her connection to John Paul II. So I think it's... I. I, I probably the movie. I think it's one, um, one verifiable miracle, along with other things. But miracle is the big thing, to be beatified. So that's like, you know, you're considered a blessed. You're considered sort of on your way. And then two miracles to be considered a canonized saint. The reason it's called a canonized saint is, in the canon of the mass, you know, you name certain people. Those of you who grew up Catholic, you said things like, you know, Peter and Paul, James, John, and you got some goofy names like. Linus and Cletus and so on and so forth. If you're if you're canonized, you're then named in that list. So that's sort of a big deal. But this is this is on the way. You may have seen the Pope was in England about three months ago, and he was in England because he did the same thing for uh, John Henry Newman, who was an Anglican priest, left the Anglican Church, and became a Catholic cardinal, and he uh, was on the way. So, anyways, that's a big deal. I mean, I bet if you look today, if you want to go to Rome on May first. You can't get a hotel room. <laughs> um, they said something like three million people came to his funeral, and they're expecting double that for the beatification. And if you've ever seen the Vatican in Vatican City, it's not that big. I mean, Vatican Square is a couple football fields. I mean, so I don't know how they're going to get six million people possibly in that area. But who knows? So anyways, uh, St. Macarena, though, she is a saint, verifiable. So let's, uh, we'll pray this great prayer. It's a, it's a bit long, but that might launch us into a, a little deeper discussion. It is you, O Lord, who have freed us from the fear of death. You have made our life here the beginning of our true life. You grant our bodies to rest and sleep for a season, and you rouse our bodies again at the last trumpet. You have given in trust to the earth our earthly bodies, which you have formed with your own hands, and you have restored what you have given by transforming our mortality and ugliness by our immortality and your grace. You have delivered us from the curse of the law and from sin by being, by being made both on our behalf. You have broken the dragon's head, that dragon who seized man by the throat and dragged him through the yawning gulf of disobedience. You have opened for us the way of the resurrection in breaking the gates of hell and have destroyed him that had the power of death. You have given as a token to those who fear you the image of the holy cross to destroy the adversary, and to bring stability to our lives. Eternal God, for whom I was snatched from my mother's womb, whom my soul loved with all its strength, to whom I consecrated my flesh from my youth until now, entrust to me an angel of light who will lead me by the hand to the place of refreshment, where the water of repose is in the bosom of the holy patriarchs. May you who cut through the fire of the flaming sword and assigned to paradise him who was crucified with you and entrusted to your pity, remember me too in your kingdom, because I too have been crucified with you. 
From fear of you I have nailed down my flesh and have been in fear of your judgments. May the terrible gulf not separate me from those whom you have chosen, nor may the malignant enemy set himself across my path, nor may my sin be discovered in your sight. If having error through the weakness of our human nature, I have committed any sin in word or in deed. May you who have power on earth to forgive sins forgive me, that I may draw breath and that I may be found in your presence, having shed my body and without spot or wrinkle in the form of my soul, and that my soul may be innocent and spotless and may be received into your hands like incense in your presence. Amen. That, uh, that's a great prayer. Um, and it sort of wraps up, you know, we've talked a lot about the Desert Mothers. I've given you every, every bit of writing from the Desert Mothers, mothers from this book. So now what uh, the author is going to do, this Laura Swan, is she's going to begin to wrap up sort of the major themes. And she begins that by giving us this prayer of St. Macrina, obviously a prayer at her deathbed. But um, if you had to sort of summarize what you learned from the Desert Mothers, and maybe you'd say, hey, Jeanette, maybe you'd say, um, you know, I didn't learn anything I didn't know before, or maybe you'd say, I didn't learn anything, or maybe you'll say, gosh, I learned a lot, here are some of the key themes. What would you have to say? What are some things that you remember? I know it's been some time. Yeah? Yes, right. Good. Okay, so devotion. And devotion requires time, which is always the hard part. I mean, there's no one in this room, I don't think, who doesn't want to have deeper devotion to Christ. But the reality is, devotion requires time, and not all of you have the time you'd like, or not all of you spend the time you'd like, in devotion to Christ. So the question is, now you give an example of devotion, Jeanette, which is to study his word, okay? Are there other forms of devotion to Christ? Yeah, good. Now I want to I want to talk about that for a minute. I always spell meditation like mediation, so I need to that's right. Is that right, Ab? That's right. Okay, so study his word, prayer, meditation, good. Um, what do you mean by meditation? Because my guess is when you hear meditation, what do you think of? Say that again? Yoga, okay. By the way, did you hear all the horoscopes changed? Did I ever tell you the story about the funeral I did where the guy read the horoscope? You've not heard this story? I got so many good stories. Kirby, you should have gone to Iowa early because I'm just going to tell stories this morning. Okay, so... Um, now, I've been accused of telling the same stories over and over again, um, so I will try to only say this story once. But I was doing a funeral once where uh, I went and I did the commendation of the dying for this guy who really wasn't a member, but he, you know, he calls and said his mom was a Lutheran, and um, you know, that doesn't mean a whole lot today, because who knows what that means. But I went out and did the commendation of the dying. We did a funeral, and part of the funeral was um, they said we'd like to have a eulogy, and we said... You know, have the eulogy before we come. When we come to the funeral home to do the funeral, let's start the funeral. Okay, great. So we show up, Bruzek and I, this was probably five years ago. We show up, we get vested. They say, we have, we're very sorry, but we're running behind. You're like, running behind the funeral? How can you be, I mean, come on. Yeah, exactly. So they, so yeah, so I mean, come on now. I mean, let's stay on schedule. So they said, we're just going to have the eulogies. Well, the son gets up, and what does he read as the eulogy? For horoscope. And I'm like, one, I mean, you said we said no eulogies when it's time for the service to start, and then you read her horoscope, and then they played like some, I don't remember what it was, some um, like Led Zeppelin piece over the CD player. And uh, so that was the start to the funeral, the horoscope and the Led Zeppelin piece. That was almost as bad as the funeral I did where they said we couldn't get an organist to come play at the funeral home. Don't worry, we've got a CD that has the tunes. What they didn't calculate was, when they asked me for the hymns, there were five stanzas to the hymns. How many were on the CD? Three. So what happens? Everybody, the CD stops, and everybody looks at me like, what are we supposed to do now? So I said, we will speak the remaining stanzas to the hymn. <laughs> that was a bad, bad funeral. That was a bad moment. You hate that. You just look unprepared. But it wasn't my fault. So, um, 
Okay, so meditation, horoscopes, train of thought here. Now, what, how would you, so when you think of meditation, you think of yoga, okay? How can, how can meditation be um, a uniquely Christian discipline? What would you say? Good. Now, that's, that's very good. Clear your mind of all the other clutter and think about what you should be thinking about. Now, that's much easier said than done. So, uh, how? go ahead, Holly. Do you have something to... Yeah. Yes. This is what's often called Lectio Divina. Divina. Or um, sort of divine reading. Which is different than reading for the sake of reading. It's reading for the sake of something sort of taking hold of you. Well, I, I don't, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't do yoga. So, what is meditation and yoga like? I honestly don't know. Good. That's exactly what I thought. So, yes, yes. So, to meditate uh, in the world is to not think about anything. To meditate in the church is to think about one thing in particular. And the one thing, obviously, would be Christ. Now, obviously, you can think about that in different ways. Meditate on his word. Um, you know, Luther, Luther writes a great little piece called How to Meditate on the Passion of Christ. And it's all about meditating on the crucifix. So, um, and you saw that in the, in the thing from St. Macrina. The cross is your adversary against the devil. So, it's nothing or nothingness. And in the church... It's Christ, okay? Yeah. They really say that kind of stuff? Really? Interesting. This is when you go do hot yoga? What's that thing called where it's like 200 degrees? You pass out and have a, like have a heart attack in the... Wheaton Sports Center. Yeah. So, partly, um, there's always there's this is what this is what Saint Paul talks about when he says, you know, there's a war going on inside of you. So there are always two things battling. It's the power of evil and the power of good. And obviously, those two powers have something associated with them: the power of evil, the devil; the power of good, Christ. So there is a sense in which you have to drive out the power of evil. But it's not the power of evil just for the sake of driving it out. It's the power of evil driving it out so you can be filled with the power of good. Um, so you're right. Primarily, the goal of Christian meditation is to be filled, not to be emptied. But there is an emptying. There has to be. Um, and this is why sometimes it's helpful to meditate on your own sins because you realize how depraved you actually are. And you can then begin to empty those things. This is why in, the, in Doberstein's prayer book for like Wednesday morning, he says, let the memory of my sins you know, be so painful that I never do them again. That's Christian meditation. Carol. Right. Yeah. Yeah, another way to think about it is the more you let Christ inside, the more bad stuff gets pushed out. So don't worry about the pushing out necessarily, although as you mature in spirituality, that's one thing you do, you do worry about. But just to kind of start, just worry about putting Christ inside of you. Now, Christ can get in any number of ways. He can get in through your ear. He can get in through you know, your mouth. He can get in through your forehead. Usually he doesn't come sort of intellectually, at least not the first way he comes. So this is why if you're going to meditate on Scripture, what's the best way to do it? Not to just open up and start reading, but to open up and start reading how. Out loud. Yeah. This is why St. Paul says, you know, how can they believe if they've not heard? He doesn't say, how can they believe if they've not read? How can they believe if they've not heard? Now, there are reasons for that. They weren't passing Bibles around like they are today. But still, the point is, Christ crawls in through your ear. Um, how else does he get in? He also gets in through your mouth, through the Eucharist, and you can meditate Eucharistically. How would you meditate Eucharistically? 
Yeah, partly by going to it. What else? Yeah, exactly. That's, that's part of it. And there's also a reason why we hold the host up. Why is it important for you to see it? Yeah, it more than makes you think, but it gives you a visual to carry with you the rest of the day. I mean, yeah, exactly. And the visuals are, are very important. So I would say to you, if you wanted to start sort of working in this direction, you'd want to start reading out loud, scripture is good. Also, find an image. It could be, you know, for, for many Lutherans, it's something like an icon, a painting, maybe the image of the host and the chalice. Or, uh, you know, of course, for Luther, it was a crucifix. I mean, meditating on an empty cross doesn't do much good. <laughs> Why doesn't it do much good? Because the one you're supposed to fill yourself with isn't on it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You've got to meditate on things that give you pictures of Jesus. So icons are good. The host is good. The chalice is good. A crucifix is good. A painting is good. All these things um, sort of give you visuals towards your meditation. What else? How, uh, now, so for those of you who have, who have some, sorry, go ahead. Good. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Partly, see, here's the thing. You were in a generation where people cared about this kind of stuff. I mean, how many of you, when you grew up, had memory work and took it seriously? You had lots of memory work. Yeah, okay, so that group right back there, those three back, you had it, but you didn't take it seriously. I remember, they used to, it was always, how many of you, now those of you who raised your hands, how many of you had fill-in-the-blank memory work? Okay, so one out of about 30. Oh, Donna, when you grew up, yeah, you had both, but primarily, when you grew up, what did you have to do? You had to memorize the whole thing. Commit it to memory. I can remember my mom saying, say it 10 times, and you'll commit it to memory. And I would sit there and say, the third commandment, you know, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. What does this mean? This means, you know, we should yada, yada, yada. So the point is, you would memorize things. But for those of you who grew up in an era where you did that a lot, you suddenly have built-in resources. If you ask kids today, hey, when you can't sleep, repeat the, you know, Psalm 121, they're like, what? Maybe Psalm 23, they can get the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I don't remember what the rest of it is. So partly you have a different set of resources, and you need to use those resources. What resources do people have today? Yes. Yes, good. That's exactly, that's exactly where I'm going. So partly people today, what's that? Google, okay. Google. The liturgy. Now think, now think within the specifics of the liturgy. I'm pushing you, and I know I'm... I always hate when people sort of ask questions just for the sake of asking questions when they really know what the answer is. I really know what the answer is, I'm thinking, but I'm going to ask questions anyway. Because when people do it to me, it peeves me, so I'm just going to do it to all of you. Uh, what part of the liturgy is particularly, um, particularly unique in that it gives itself to be memorized? Obviously, there are liturgical parts. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. But think about what you sing in the liturgy. Yeah, so some of the great canticles, some of the great songs. What else? Now, what? think about this. If you were going to memorize something, how would you memorize it? If I said memorize these hundred words, what would you do? Repeat it over and over. Now, think about the parts of the liturgy that repeat over and over and over again. Good. Good, but you're still too Lutheran for me. Keep going. I'm kidding. Keep going. How about Tizay? Yeah, that's part. Okay, good. So whatever the cantor chants. Good. That, and that's exactly the reason it happened. So partly, one person said to me, why do we sing those taser songs? I'm like, taser songs? This guy was in my face. Why do we sing? I don't like those. I'm like, well, buddy, first of all, it's not all about you. And second of all, 
It's not called taser. It's called taze. Um, why do we sing those taser songs? Well, part of the reason you sing those taser songs is because what? It can be repeated over and over and over again. How many of you leave church and you, without even knowing it, you're humming in the back of your head the, the taze songs? Guess what? That's meditation. So meditation is not just, although it is this, Jeanette, it's not just saying, I'm going to spend an hour reading my Bible, or I'm going to spend an hour clearing my thoughts, or I'm going to spend an hour sitting in church looking at the stained glass windows. Those are all forms of meditation. Some of you don't have an hour to give up. And I know that sounds bad, because what are you all thinking, those of you who do have an hour? Well, I make time for it. Well, sometimes it's not that easy. So how can you meditate? Sing the hymns on Sunday and go home and see if they stick with you. I mean, it's great to hear... You know, people say, oh, I love to say hymns. It's even better when you hear young kids singing it over and over. How many of your kids, if you have young kids, sing it? Yeah, I mean, Emma all the time will walk around the house and she'll start singing. And it's especially interesting when she sings it in Latin. Isn't that great? Magnificat, you know, anima mea deo. So go ahead. And why is that? Partly, it's not that a way in a manger is a bad song. It's that it's not as easy to memorize. And we don't sing, and we don't sing it as often in church. You sing it, you sing a way in a manger once a year, Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. Because it doesn't fit the rest of it. But part of the reason those other ones are very easy to memorize is they're repeatable, they're short phrases, all those sorts of things. Okay, that makes sense? So don't, if you think of, if you think of meditation as something that's a burden, like, Oh boy, I gotta send the kids out of the room for an hour and I gotta go look at this crucifix and it's gonna be miserable. <laughs> it's gonna be painful. Now here's the thing. Yeah, it's like the tension. And if it's like the tension, is it law or gospel? It's law, yeah. I remember my dad was the principal and he gave me a detention. Now that was interesting. I got in a fist fight with a kid in the front hallway and he's like, I have to give you a detention. Although I'm glad you beat the kid up. <laughs> this kid was Shoot, I can't believe it. I know. But partly, if, it, if it's a burden, it's not in the way of the gospel. So it has to be a gift. So for some of you for whom that's just not possible, that much time, go to church, sing the songs well, and go home and see if it sticks with you. Repeatable things are good. I would also say repeatable prayers are good. So, you know, we've, we've run a lot um, the Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Amen. It's amazing to me, and I do this often, you know, how many of you can feel your blood pressure rising? Oh, I mean, I can feel it. And I know exactly when it's going to happen. And I know, and I know, okay, now you got to push it down. And I'm very good at now kind of pushing it down. I never used to be, but I am now. But part, part of the reason I've gotten better at it is when I can feel that coming, I instantly slip into the Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And the reason it's prayed that way, you know, if you're an Eastern Orthodox Christian, you'll sometimes pray that, a thousand times a day. In fact, they say monks who are Eastern Orthodox monks pray it 10,000 times a day. What it does is it not only orders your prayers, but also it begins to affect your breathing. As you pray those prayers, you sort of breathe through the prayers, and that instantly then calms you, helps you meditate, and sort of centers you. We'll talk about centering prayer in a minute. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Do you use it? So you use the Jesus prayer. I think it's great. Yeah, exactly. Yep. 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 You can feel it. Yep. It, it's an amazing experience. I mean, it's, it's visceral. You can sort of know what's going on, and you can feel your blood pressure go down. And it doesn't work for everybody, but I find, like, if you wake up in the middle of the night and you're worried about something, that's a great prayer to pray. Same thing during the day. You know, I, I've even, little things like some guy cuts you off and you get angry, and you're like, why am I angry at some guy? You know, there's not enough time in life for that. So pray that prayer. And there are other prayers like that as well. Um, and obviously, if you grew up in different traditions, you've got other, you know, if you grew up Catholic, you've got different prayers that you can pray as well. Um, but all those sorts of repetitive prayers are very, very helpful. And oftentimes, people critique Lutherans who want to pray those, and what do they say? Oh, it becomes repetitive, so it has no meaning. I believe it's quite the opposite. It's so repetitive, it becomes a part of who you are. 
And that means it has more meaning than just reciting a common table prayer or whatever it may be. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Let Jan go, and then we'll go to you. Yep. Right, and I think the point is, this is why I said Donna grew up in a generation where she was blessed. If you're my age, you know, our generation of kids and even us ourselves don't have those same resources. No, and see, here's the thing. I've always said, why do we do the liturgy? We do the liturgy because it makes the best disciples. How is that played out practically? Go see anybody with dementia or Alzheimer's who's been a lifelong Christian and had the liturgy, and what happens? Instantly they slip back into it. I mean, I know people, I would see people year after year who they were on like 10-minute rotating cycles. You'd walk in, they'd say hello, and 10 minutes later, what are they saying? Hello, good to see you again. But in those 10 minutes, they knew the liturgy. And our kids don't have that. And it's a great sadness that our kids will grow up, and what's going to happen to them, they're going to be on their deathbed, and some pastor is going to come, and what's going to happen? They're not going to know what to say. So those are resources we have to teach our kids. So I'm especially speaking to like young moms. Teach your kids these repetitive prayers. Teach your kids to say. Teach your kids the liturgy. And don't teach it to them like, kids, we're going to do this. Teach it to it. Just let them see you do it. You have to embody the faith for people. And that's something that if you've been around for 50 or 60 years, your generation had that and mine didn't. So. Maddie? Yeah. And in part, yeah. And I, I think if you've not done this, if you're like me and you, you don't do this regularly, what you're thinking is that would seem like a long period of time. But when you do it, it's not that long. I mean, I can remember when we were sitting in Venice at St. Mark's Basilica. They have one of the most famous icons there. And I sat in front of that icon probably for an hour and looked down at my watch. It felt like five minutes. And you realize you've been there that whole time. So partly the more you do it, the more natural it becomes. The same thing with prayer. People say prayer at first, you hate doing it. Then you can tolerate it. And by the end of your life, you love it. That's how we got to be with meditation. Somebody had a hand up back there. Yeah. No, exactly. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, the reason we give those to you, and we're trying to get better, for a while we were so swamped that we just put margin comments in as filler. Like, okay, we need seven this week. Let's just find seven. But we've tried to get back to using those to teach and using those for prayer so that actually they have meaning for different parts of the liturgy. Vic, will you help me hand these out? Vicar's trying to work out a car deal for me right now. So if he looks a little distracted, he is, uh, you need to buy a car, talk to the vicar. Well, he charges a hefty fee. Isn't that right? <laughs> <laughs> The vicar was kind enough to help us uh, get our van. I actually felt bad for all the sins he committed in beating the guy down. But um, I said to him when it was all done, I said, don't worry, I'm going to get you something for helping me out. And then he said, well, where's my present? I said, don't worry, it's coming. Then time passed, and I completely forgot. So write that down. We've got to get the big something. Yeah, I said, your gift is that you passed. <laughs> All right. This is sort of, uh, I gave you the whole section here. You know, we're not going to read all this today, but, but there are some helpful bits here. Um, and I, I don't even want to necessarily prompt you toward anything. I just want to hear your reaction. Because as I read this, I found myself, um, I, find my, I found myself being able to relate completely to this woman as she began to discuss you know, what the gift of the desert mothers was to her. You remember from scripture, who do you remember was out in the desert? Who was out in the desert for some period of time? There were a number of people. Who were they? Do you remember? 
John the baptizer, yeah. Christ, good. Yes, good. The Israelites. So, Christ, Israel, John the Baptist. Yeah. Say that again. Yeah, Moses was there. Yeah. All the I mean all the other all the other folks who were with Israel. Why did they they always went to the desert before what happened? Yeah. Okay, that's one way of looking at it. Before they got something good, like Moses who looked at the promised land and dropped dead. That, I don't know if that was so good, but uh, hey Moses, you can see it, but you can't touch it. <laughs> it's like, okay, everybody, so, so, the rule, so the rule's not across the board. Okay, well, good try, good try. <laughs> before they got something good, that's part of it, but before they were sort of put into the Lord's service full blast, Right? John the baptizer spent years out in the wilderness, and then he was put into the Lord's service by doing what? He baptized Jesus. Jesus, as soon as he is baptized, does what? Goes out into the wilderness, then he comes back, and he's got a three-year ministry. Moses and Elijah and Israel all wander in the wilderness and then find themselves in the promised land, Moses and Israel, to do what? To live as God's children. So, you know, you can think about your life this way. You know, how many of you spiritually have spent time in the wilderness. Okay, thank you. Good. I think all of you have. And maybe you're in the wilderness right now, or maybe you have been in the wilderness very recently. But you always have to see the wilderness, and that's the reason these desert mothers are out there. And this is why she calls this section, you know, the gift of the desert. You have to see being in the wilderness not as a curse, but as a gift. It's preparing you for something. And part of your wilderness, part of your busy lives, part of the troubles you've had, deaths, deaths and you know, marriages that have gone bad and church experiences that have gone bad, all those things are preparing you for something better. And what you have to see is that something better is here right now. What is it? And how can you achieve it? How can you attain it? How can you have it? So, page 151, my journey with the Amaz, those are you know, spiritual mothers, has been a wonderfully enriching experience. In my pursuit of their stories, they have taught me by word and example. Some of my experiences began to make sense to me. The quiet pull toward change in the present has become clearer. How I want to live in the future is much more focused and understandable. They can be guides for us all. So I would say to you, over the course of the next five or six months, if you can see two things, that change is needed in the future. All of us have to change. All of us have to change. If you can see that change in the, in, the, in the present is needed and what goal it is to which the Lord is pulling you in the future, if you can see those two things, um, you know, you're on the right track. If you say to yourself, I have no idea what needs to change today and I don't know where the Lord is taking me, then we've got to talk. Okay? But this is what she found. This is how she found the desert mothers to be helpful. We are a generation of seekers. We desire to know an authentic God. How many of you want to know who God really is? How many of you say to yourself, I, can't, I, I don't know why these things happen? I mean, the Arizona shooting, why does something like that happen? I actually feel extraordinarily sad for the person who did it because nobody in their right mind as a human being should do something like that. Something has gone terribly wrong. We want our faith to help us understand moral and ethical choices in work, education, economics, politics, and even our family. This is a critique of Lutherans, and it's a good one. Lutherans are normally not concerned about ethics and morality. What are Lutherans concerned with? I'm saved by grace through faith, not by works, lest any man should boast. Okay, here's the thing, friends. How many of you don't believe you're saved by grace alone? Raise your hand. Okay, good. So it's off the table. We all understand that. I, I'm being dead serious. Part of the problem with Lutheranism today is we're still talking about a battle that was fought 500 years ago. We have to move on. And you have to move on to say, Christ has justified me and forgiven me. What does he want me to live for? Nobody in this room doesn't think they're going to heaven. If you think you're not going to heaven, come talk to me, because it's very easy. You know what I'm going to say? You're baptized. End of discussion. Nobody thinks that. But how many of you get up every day and say, okay, now the choices I make today are they ethically and morally in line with, with what Christ would have me do? Everything from what you watch on TV to what you say to your spouse to where you shop to what you say to your friends, 
All those things are decisions you have to make every day. And I don't think we think about those. I don't. I mean, I don't wake up every morning and say, is this ethically what Christ wants for me? So we've got to think about those things, and the desert mothers can help us with that. We want to integrate spirituality into every facet of our daily lives. I mean, how many of you want doing the dishes to become more than just doing the dishes? We are questing for voices that have never been heard before. We are reclaiming women's spirituality and listening to the voices of non-dominant cultures to help us find our way. If you want to know what it is to be Christian, go to a place where they kill Christians. Okay? It's very easy to say here, oh, I, I know what Christians are like. I just read a poll the other day about like 80% of people lie about their church attendance. <laughs> that is like, you know what, I mean, I've lived that lie. I mean, I know people that have, I know people that were in very high positions that said, yeah, I go to church, and they really didn't. They had friends sign in for them. That's the way American culture is. Go to a place where you get killed if you go to church. Then it's a different ballgame. Okay? We are a generation of questioners. We do not want to be told what to do, what to think, or what to believe. And that, you know what, that's true enough. We insist on figuring it out ourselves. Faith must make sense and seem logical. It must stand up to our challenges. We want to encounter God, not merely learn about him. And that's important. The reason you come to church is not to just have your head opened up and information put in. Information doesn't save. It's a relationship with Christ. And I don't mean in sort of the warm, fuzzy, personal relationship with Jesus. What I mean is it's intimate connection to the flesh of Jesus that saves you. We are a generation that yearns for wisdom figures, heroes and heroines, amas and abbas who will show us the way. I mean, one thing I say often to Emma is, grow up and be like this person. If you don't have someone in your life right now that you can say to your kids, grow up and be like that person, you haven't experienced the full riches of the church. Because that's the way the church should be built. And one of the great sadnesses is, you expect spiritual immaturity from young people and new Christians who do you not expect it from? Old folks. Folks that have been in the church for 40 or 50 years. And I don't mean just old in age. I mean people, you know, they're middle-aged people, whatever. One of the great sadnesses is when you can't say to your kids, grow up and be like so-and-so. Because that's the way the church should work. Read 1 John. Young men bring up, you know, old men bring up young men. Okay? While being questioners and questers, we are often lost. We follow too many fads and fashions in our search. We, too often, we are left with a shallow and narcissistic inner life. <laughs> Just watch Jersey Shore. It's true. <laughs> I mean, yeah, well, just watch Jersey Shore. One time, I'll allow it. Yeah, that falls under the ethical, moral question, but for one time, for the case of demonstration in the class, I'll let you watch the Jersey Shore. It's like people who watch The Real Housewives. I've never met anyone like that. No, I'm kidding. New people to this class don't quite know my humor yet, so if I make fun of you, as my grandma used to say, it's because I love you. The Amas show us how to begin the spiritual journey and what the elements of a life-giving and challenging spirituality are. If it's easy, it's not real. They model healthy mentoring for us, showing us signs of what a modern Amma or Abba might look like. Now, um, I want to read one more sentence to you. Look down what captivates our hearts. And this is part of your meditation, thinking about what it is that takes up space in your life. The Amma showed me, this is the author, that my life was too fast-paced and cluttered. I was trying to do too much. I found it difficult to say no to others and was always overcommitted. Okay, now let's just pause right there. Okay? If, yes, okay, good. I was going to say, if you're willing to share your story, I mean, how many of you feel like you're doing too much, you're overcommitted, and heaven forbid you actually say no to someone? Okay? It's a very hard thing to learn. Yeah, exactly. And partly, I mean, and this is something we've tried to work on, um, you know, partly at St. John, there are, you know, a hundred ways that you can be involved. You know, pick your thing. Women's Bible study, meal ministry, you know, altar guild, whatever it may be. And what often happens is people come into the church, here you are, and what do you do? 
And I think, and maybe if I have time, I'll try this too. I mean, the reality is what's going to happen. You're going to be overwhelmed. I mean, just think about how many days some of you are down at church. How many days in a week you're down at church? I get paid to be at church every day. The vicar gets paid very little, but he still gets paid to be at church every day. But how many of you, you know, just sort of show up and you have your hands in everything? There's a difference between, um, we talked a lot about uh, thinking a lot and doing a lot. We have lots of folks like this who want to do a lot. But in their doing a lot, what are they not doing? Thinking. So they're doing all these sorts of things. And what ends up happening? Oh, they are away from their kids. So then families break down. They're not home with their spouse when they get home from work. So marriages break down. They're not hanging out with their other friends. So their friendships break down. All these things happen because what? We can't discern where our spot is. Part of the reason we've talked at length in Sunday morning Bible study about finding your spot is because going next door, there's going to be a hundred different ways to be involved. And we have two problems here. One problem is some people are not involved in anything. The other problem is some people are involved in everything. Both are wrong. Everybody has to find the one thing they want to do. So if you're doing 30 things right now, figure out in the next two or three months what the one thing is you want to do. And don't do it, you know, if I was with men, I'd swear. Don't do it halfway. Don't do it, do it all the way. Okay? Because if you just do it halfway, what happens? It never gets done well. And if you're not doing anything, find your spot, find something you love. And I, I think for some of you who don't do much, the question is, I don't know, the question you're asking yourself is, where can I be used best? And that's something we can help you out with. Very much so. Right. I mean, let's be realistic. None of us is good at everything. But all of us who are good at something put together can be very good at everything. And that's what we have to figure out. And this is what she's talking about. I mean, I know some of you, you're like this. You do 10 different things. And some of, for some of you, it's very easy. You know, you don't, you don't have other things binding you down. But some of you have families and spouses and things like that. And when that happens, everything falls apart. Listen, if you're so committed to church that your marriage falls apart, you're of no use to us. Because at some point, what's going to happen, you're going to drop off the face of the earth, come in and tell me you're getting a divorce, and then what am I going to say? Why didn't you tell me before? And it all could have been saved if you could have prioritized your life. Yes. No, I agree. Yep, exactly. Yep. Yep. Exactly right. And, and people, you're right, there are some people that don't do anything at church, but they have 52 commitments in the world. That's an equal, that problem is just as equally as bad. But it's, but it's well, let's just keep looking. I mean, she says some great stuff. Look at uh, the bottom of page 152. The Amas began to show me the way toward an interior simplicity and detachment. This is from the very first week. They gave me permission to let go of all those things that can weigh me down and make life more difficult and cumbersome. I began to let go, one by one, all my worries, concerns, attempts to please others, and past hurtful memories. I became less burdened and more lighthearted. How many of you would like that to happen? And here, and let me tell you, I mean, this is, and this is, you know, if you're around, come on Sunday morning, please, at least for a week or two, we're going to talk about the office of the ministry. Part of the things that, that's been lost in our current culture and even in our church is that we don't see pastors as people who care for souls. How do you see your pastor? I mean, some of you do. But generally speaking, how does the American, American population see their pastors? Counselor? Yeah. If you need him, call him. Yeah. What else? Yeah, the guy, you know what, we need someone up there, and frankly, I work full-time at Lucent, so I can't really write a sermon, so okay, fine, go And I could write a sermon. I could, just as good as he could. But you know what, I'm busy. I'm making $300,000 a year. I can't really, well, get some schmo to write a sermon for, you know, whatever. Yeah, that's part of it. Yeah, how else? Yeah. 
It's like, it's like the reason I don't go to Wheaton Barbershop anymore is because for the first three times I went there, no lie, the guy kept saying, ah, day off again? I'd go on, you know, I'd go on like a Saturday. I said, day off? Well, I mean, you only work on Sundays. This guy was dead serious. So part of the thing is, what, how do we see our pastors? Counselors, they fill a void. Um, as I'll show you on Sunday, one of the founding principles of the Missouri Synod, which is not biblical or confessional, it was put forward by a layperson. What did he say? Pastors are public servants. I'm like the garbage man, right? I mean, I'm being serious. I'm not banging. I'm just saying that's how they're viewed. Part of the trouble is until about, I don't know, 1900s in America, pastors were seen as physicians of the soul. Physicians of the soul. Now, that's a very different thing than a garbage man. A garbage man means you do the work, you maybe give him a little Christmas bonus, and you hope he comes back after the holidays. A, a physician of souls means you can go to the hospital anytime you need him, and he should be there to help you out. And he's the first guy you go see. And part of the reason we've gotten into this trouble is two things happen. When people are trying to find their spot, who do they go to? Their friends, you know, their, the internet. Instead of going to the pastor and saying, I really love these 12 things, I don't have time for all of them. You put me where you think I'm best. And when they get overwhelmed, what happens? They blame the pastor. What I want to say is it wasn't my fault you got involved in 32 things. I told you to do one thing. Okay? Fewer things well. So part of it is, and this is why, you know, if you're around, please come to Bible study on Sunday. This is, in some sense, this is going to be a cosmic shift in the way we do church. We have to recover a sense of pastor as one who cares for souls not just as some hired servant. The problem today in the Missouri Synod, the problem today is that on a whole, this is why I said your son should post certain vacation, on a whole, the problem today is pastors are inconsequential. And I know that doesn't go for all of you. That's not what I'm saying. But the way the structure is set up, pastors are inconsequential. If you need them, call them. If you don't need them, it's going to be okay. That is not the way Jesus sets up the church. And that's part of the reason I would propose to you books like this get written. Because there's no one to care for a soul. Yes. Yeah. Yep. No. Yeah. There are yeah there are lots of if you if you know Catholic friends who are very faithful many of them will have spiritual directors, and part of the thing is you know pastors and counselors do two very different things. And part of the problem in, with, with the church, and I mean now the broad church, is people mistake counselors for pastors and pastors for counselors. So they come to you and say, my husband won't take the trash out and I'm ready to divorce him. And I say, I can't give you marriage advice. I mean, talk to my wife, <laughs> right? At the same time, they go to their counselors and say, I've cheated on my spouse and I haven't been faithful. And what, what can the counselor say at that point? Maybe you should think about divorce or maybe you should, they can't. So pastors and counselors are very different things. A spiritual director is nice because it sort of falls in the middle. He or she is not going to forgive your sins, but they will give you psychological slash, you know, daily living advice with a real theological thrust. It's very good. It's very good. Yes, Maddie. Yeah, one one person. Yeah, yeah. I mean, here's the here's the sadness. I mean, people don't. I think sometimes people think I'm making this stuff up. I wish I was. Like the time when the person was a man was in my face about two weeks ago with his finger. I mean, about this close to me, yelling at me because the microphone down here doesn't work. And I want to say, yeah. I mean, here's the thing. If that's what I'm good for then I shouldn't be here as a pastor. I should be working for a microphone company. I said to this person, I have no idea about microphones, one. And two, do you want me to track down, you want me to call all these companies? I mean, talk to somebody else. So partly, you pastors, pastors are used, but they're not used well because they're not doing what they should be doing. Okay? Look at page 154. Everybody okay? 
Top of the page. While God always remains present to us, we can move through life oblivious of the divine, to the divine presence in our midst. How many of you, you know, during the day think, okay, I'm a divine human being. I've been joined to the flesh of Jesus. He's with me. Probably not. You're thinking, I'm going to be late. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm going to be late. Get in the car. I mean, it's always bad when you have tardies at preschool, right? When you get, I just, I mean, and I've been tardy with Emma. When I take her, actually, I walked in way late. You think, all I'm thinking about is getting Emma to get her bag hung up and get her snack in the box and get her, I'm not thinking about Christ is physically present in our midst. That's not what's going through my head. The Amas teach us of the importance of cultivating attentiveness to the divine. Now bump down to the next paragraph. Our dominant culture trends to favor doing over being. In our frantic doing, our inner world can be neglected and left unheard. Our self-image and sense of self-worth are intimately connected with all our doing, even the doing of our play. Those of you who have low self-esteem, part of the reason you do is because you're doing all these different things and none of them are done well, and you say to yourself, I am a failure. That's the reality. Yeah, why is that? That's, I hadn't thought about that, but that's very interesting. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. So your value is primarily attached to what attached to what you get done. Yeah. Or not get done. Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. And you have to see, you have to, yeah. I know. I mean, you got to, you got to, but you got to, yeah, you got to see, you, well, you, you got to see being idle as, this is, if you're, okay, so idleness for the sake of idleness is yoga. Idleness for the sake of being filled with the divine is Christian meditation. That's the difference. You're right. Idleness for the sake of just sitting around is not very good. Get some work done. <laughs> God bless you. No. Because their husbands are not nice men. I don't know. Okay, where was I? Oh, page 155, yes. I agree. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and, you, can, and you can spot this pretty, pretty easily. You're right. People oftentimes will fall into one of these two categories. These people are the people you always see around and never with their family. I'm speaking to the church now. These are the people who call me every day with a new idea. And there are people, I, I kid you not, there are people that call me four times a week and say, I've been thinking about this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Take a break. It's going to be okay. But usually you're right. There's not usually a proper balance. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, I got, you know, do you know Kirby Bruzak? She's looking for some work to do. Yeah, call her. <laughs> no, you're exactly right. They should be calling the doers. The problem is people are not usually gifted at both. And so either they think a lot. I mean, people, emails. And it usually begins with, hey, pastor, I've been thinking. I'm like, oh, boy, that is not good. This is not good. I've been thinking we should do this. And usually what that means is you. So my response is, good idea. Work out the details and let me know what time I should come. And I'll be there. I mean, I don't mind going to stuff, but I'm not going to set it up. So partly we got to figure out the thinking people got to get to work and the doing people got to think a little more before they sign themselves up for something. It's very easy, and, I, and I, this, is one of the, this is one of the problems with the church that's gone through some money, some money struggles, and this is why we got to get out of it. When you go through problems financially, it's always 
cast the hat, drop a few bucks in. It's another plea for money to save something. Or it's, okay, we don't have the money to paint the third floor. How many of you can sign up and come paint the third floor? And what you're thinking is, I know you, what you're thinking is, I really don't have the time to do that, but I don't want to say no. Especially if I come up and say to you, hey, you know, Kate, can you come paint this? What are you going to say? No? You're going to say, okay, I'll come paint the third floor, and the whole time you're going to be peeved. So we got to get better at not being in a position where we always have to beg, and you getting better at saying, I just can't do that. Yes. Well, that's why, you remember the Psalms don't say, get to work and know that I am God. They say, be still and know that I am God, right? So the most proper place for a Christian, this is, if you don't believe me, go read the Mary and the Martha text where he invites them, they get invited over for dinner. Not that, not that Martha chose anything bad, but Mary chose the better way, right? Because she sat at his feet and listened. All right, we got two more minutes, and I want to get you through the end of this short section here. Page 155, second full paragraph. The Amas taught me, that the way out of the frenzied pace of our culture involves both external and internal journeys. I simplified possessions and needs. I am committed to owning less, not accumulating more. So here's the thing. I don't mean go sell everything, but maybe you don't need to buy anything new for a couple years. I let go of all commitments and activities that did not support or fit within my life goals. Friendships are fewer, but deeper and richer. How many of you thrive on just having, I mean, well, I shouldn't ask you, Go look at your Facebook page and see how many of you have over like 900 friends. I guarantee you're not friends with every one of those people. At least not deep friends. And some of us thrive on how many friends we can have. I would propose to you, pick two or three and make them great friends and call it square. It's going to be okay. That doesn't mean you're not nice to other people. But we see friendship as, you know, some mark of us being nice people. No. There are lots of people I'm not friends with. Some of you in this room, I don't think we would consider ourselves friends, like we're going to hang out. But that doesn't mean I dislike you. Right? I mean, that just means we have a different relationship. There are some people in the church who I'm very good friends with, and that just means we have a different relationship. Although I will tell you, Vicar, you can tell your son this, don't make friends in the church. I'm serious. It's very hard to do. Because part of the struggle is, this is actually very good we're talking about this, part of the struggle is, if you and I become friends, you're not going to be able to distinguish when I'm your friend and when I'm your pastor. And that's happened on multiple occasions where people have thought, one, they stopped coming to confession because they thought, well, now he knows me. I can't tell him anymore. Or two, when something went down at the church, they expected I would side with them because we were friends. Don't make friends in the parish. Just It doesn't work that way. Exactly right. Yeah, exactly right. you got, you got to be one thing. And if you're very lucky, you can make friends. But it, it means on both respects, pastor and other folks, they have to understand first year they're pastor and second year they're friend. And some people just can't do that. Yes, it is. Yeah, if, you're, if you say I'm friends with my kids, first and foremost, you got problems. Yeah. First year they're parent. You can, you can like your kids. I love my kids. I'm friends with Emma. But we're not BFFs. Because somebody's got to say, go put your, your pajamas on. It's true. We're not best friends forever. She's my daughter forever. We're not best friends forever. I thought that was great. Talking to the younger culture, you know? Jiving is, jiving is not a hipster word anymore. I, I don't, yeah, I don't, I mean... There are, real honestly, there are people on Facebook I wouldn't want to share stuff with. And, and you see how this, I mean, I said to my sister who was applying for a job, I said, I would delete your Facebook page. She had nothing incriminating on it, but I said, why do you want some employer seeing you at a party in college just thinking to himself, what could you have, I mean, that kind of stuff, so partly it's a self-preservation thing. The other thing is, there is some uh, self-gratification that comes from knowing you have a multitude of things. This, is, this goes back to the culture of, if you have more, it must be better. When really, it, from the time of Jesus on, I mean, Jesus said, sell your possessions and give to the poor. doesn't mean you can't have nice stuff. You should, your husband should have a nice suit, you should have a nice TV, and if you can have a nice car, you should have it. But you don't need five nice cars. And you don't need five TVs. And you don't need... Simplicity is, is the way of the angels. Okay. Yes. 
I mean, do you, know, do you know people, and this is no criticism, but do you know people that, like, every weekend they're booked with people coming over to their house or they're going someplace? That is not the way I want to live. That's just, you don't have enough time. You don't have enough of yourself to give to people like that. And it's the same thing in the church. You don't have enough of yourself, but at the same time, and this is what Jesus does in the Gospels, he picks Jerusalem, he says, I'm going to the cross, and what does he do? He sets his face. You have to figure out what it is you want to do, set your face, and do it as good as you can do it, as well as you can do it, and, and let the chips fall where they may. That's just, we can never go forward if everybody's doing 15 different things halfway. Everybody okay? What's that? No, because you're good at it. You found your spot. You cannot give up Christmas sharing. Okay, let's pray, and we will uh, we'll be on our way, okay? Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, see you Sunday.